like a word. About memoirs with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. On We'd Like a Word. And our guests this time are Farah Bashir, author of Rumours of Spring, which is about tales from her girlhood in Kashmir. And Oriel Rowe, who runs the memoirist website and online magazine, which publishes memoirs and autobiographical extracts and that sort of thing. So hello to you all. Hello. Hello there. Hello. Uh, where, hello. where are you both? Well, I'm in um, Jerez, which is in the south of Spain. I'm Oriel, by the way. <laughs> Hi. Hello. I'm Farah, Farah Bashir. I'm in Delhi right now in the epicenter of pandemic right now. Hi, I'm Stephen and I'm in Buckinghamshire, <laughs> which is a bit more bit more local. You know, so. And I'm Paul and I'm somewhere not far away from him. I guess let's start with Rumours of Spring. Tell us what it's about. Rumours of Spring is basically a collection of memories, like it's a memoir, so it's self-explanatory. It's a collection of memories from my adolescence when I was growing up in Kashmir. Uh, this is when the insurgency against New Delhi had erupted. It was an armed rebellion for the first time in 150 years. There had been two uprisings before that. But this was the main uprising by the locals against the rule of uh, Indian rule, basically. So this is a time when things changed overnight. When I was a 13-year-old, 12-year-old, and I went into a salon to get a haircut, I had been bargaining, you know, wanting to upgrade from my father's barber to going to a proper salon where all my friends went. And by the time we came back, I mean, came out of it, uh, came out of the salon, everything had changed. So there was a first incident of firing that the local militants had fired in a, in a very busy square in downtown Srinagar. And by the time we came out, shots were shot. It was the eve of Eid, which is one of the important festivals for Muslims. So everything was shut and that announced a curfew for many, many, many weeks. And for a young girl to sort of absorb all that was going around her. And I just, I was just scared of what was happening around me. I was trying to make sense of what was happening. And it, that continued for many, many years. I just didn't know what was happening because life was changing on an hourly basis, really. Life was changing. People were getting killed. There were crackdowns, which is... Uh, search operations, the army, paramilitary can enter your homes and search and, and arrest anyone they want to. They don't need permission for that because they're covered under specific uh, laws that protect them, which is AFSPA, which is Armed Forces Special Power Act. And then uh, there is PSA, which is Public Safety Act. So under that, they get, get blanket immunity and they do everything under that with impunity. No questions asked. They're not answerable to anyone. So it's about also about a time uh, which has sort of, it was essentially documenting a particular time in Kashmir, which was about, you know, we, Kashmir hasn't really changed in many years in some ways, but insurgency just made sure that a lot of traditions, a lot, a lot of rituals were dropped. Because I'll give you a simple example. Kashmir has four seasons and we have really harsh winters. So we like to store tons of rice and other vegetables, etc., in these huge containers for winter so that it can last us four or five months. So to prepare for that, there used to be this ritual. All of us, I grew up in a very tightly knit neighborhood and the houses were like right next to each other. We shared courtyards. 
So there used to be this activity around grinding spices in a very traditional way or cleaning rice, kilos and kilos of rice and all that changed. And the generation now, which is just two generations later, the generation that's growing up now has no idea of what has changed. So it was not only documenting the memories of how, what happened politically to a place, but also what happened culturally to a place. It's also sort of documenting like social history, if you will. So I was reading in your book, In Rumours of Spring, that you used to have loads of stores on the ground floor of your house. That's, that's right. But then you thought, well, if it's going to be searched and thrown about the place when soldiers search your house, what's the point? Yeah, because they wouldn't care. I mean, we also, because we had a lot of rice, we would, we are mainly rice eaters. Rice is the staple grain, really. And then we'd also store a lot of coal to keep ourselves warm in winter. We have a special uh, fire pot, which we call kangar or kangri. That's how we keep ourselves warm in winter. They wouldn't care. They would search the gunny sacks. They would, they would up, t- turn these containers upside down and mix grain with coal. And then there was no way you were you could really separate the two. I, I remember once my mom, she broke down. There was no way she could deal with it. She couldn't cope with it. So we started storing less and less. As it is with prolonged curfews, there was scarcity of vegetables, etc. It would take a long time for veggies to get in because most of the times they come from the plains in India. And so relying on food became... Relying less on food became almost like a habit. And that sort of altered my eating pattern. Like I never have big meals, even till now. Now there's no scarcity of anything. But as a girl, I just, it informs and their formative years and they just inform how you grow up and what kind of a person you become eventually. At the start of the book, you're getting your hair done in the salon. So how, how did that go? What kind of a haircut did you get? Were you happy with it? it? A, did it, it last? A, well, it was a... Uh, it was a bob and it was uh, it was a bob and I had long I had long wavy hair and I just wanted it short and all the girls in my school because we were just like barely entering our teens and it was the time to sort of to now feel feminine and girly and you know have just live a normal girlhood and uh, I remember I went in with my sister and I'd, she'd given me a blow dry and a wash and, and I'd just come out and there was this I remember a specific uh, memory of this ad there was this jingle uh, of a shampoo and it was playing in my head when I came out of the salon it was like halo girl and I was we were barely a few steps out of the out of the salon when, when we saw everything had changed and I remember when by the time I reached home a cousin of mine had been killed he was one of the he was my my age and he'd gone out to buy shoes for himself with his father and a stray bullet sort of hit him on the side of his I mean it pierced the car and it hit him on the side of the stomach and he bled uh, to death on his way to the hospital. And because it was, it, it, this, I'm talking of a time when there were no cell phones, there were no pagers, nothing. And there was no way to uh, really ascertain who had died in our family. So my grandmother actually thought that I had died because they said the kid from their family had, had, had been killed. So by the time we reached home for that hour, she didn't know whether we were alive or not. So that was a very different kind of trauma, that traumatic four years that she lived on. I mean, that's, that sort of started for her very uh, beginning of a very traumatic time. But by the time I got home, I just got into a very strange habit. I just plucked a chunk of my hair 
as if I was trying to punish myself for really trying to bargain. Oh, I need to get my hair done and I want to, you know. Uh, so it was like a, I was thinking as a girl, as a kid at that time that I was being punished for a tantrum that I'd been, I had thrown for the last few days. And it just became a habit after that. Every time there was a stressful situation, I would just pluck my hair out. And this continued for about 28 years till I actually started writing and till my, I mean, my hands used to be busy for about four or five hours. So I, I got rid of that habit eventually. But even now, sometimes if there's a stressful situation, the first reaction is I'd start touching my hair and then I just catch myself. Sometimes I'm successful. Sometimes I do pluck a few strands. Yeah. So yeah, that's the hair story. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, I can't begin to imagine. I mean, Paul, grew up in a similar sort of thing and the fact that he, you grew up during the troubles in northern ireland and for someone like me who grew up in a fairly idyllic childhood in rural cornwall it, it's so alien i cannot imagine having a childhood like that because my childhood was just full of fun and sunshine and rain and going to the beach and you know making a band with my mates and and creating art and trying to rip the tourists off and things like this you know we didn't I, I can't imagine what it would be like to have actually spent your whole childhood or a good deal of your childhood feeling under threat all the time. It's, yeah, it's an extraordinary was, thing. Things changed so fast. Uh, I just, we didn't think it was anything. Uh, we didn't get time to really process it, to be honest. Our generation specifically, who, who saw the contrast. So I tried to sort of mimic that uh, suddenness and the change of that one hour when like sort of changed throughout the book that's like one thread for me like how I'll show the juxtaposition of things because that's how you know the suddenness of it just didn't leave me for a long time and I was it was very difficult to process it it's only when I got some distance from it is when I actually started seeing what had happened to us and I see that uh, in our generation where there are some readers who are writing to me and saying we can finally process and now we finally know what has happened to us thanks for writing it or you know so it was a sentiment that was not only mine but belonged to the whole generation i've read rumors of spring and really enjoyed it and it's a very moving and enlightening educational book as well but it's not a litany of misery some terrible things happen in it but it's not a miserable read and i wonder oriel i know on the memoirist one of the things you grapple with is somehow you publish really good memoirs, but you publish a fraction of what you're sent. And a lot of what you're sent is unremittingly miserable or maybe not so good. It must be a challenge for somebody like Farah. I suppose two challenges. One, as Steve was saying, this is a completely foreign way of growing up. So conveying that to people for whom they've no personal insight into it and secondly not making it just unremittingly miserable yeah I mean I think it was um was it David Attenborough who said that people are not um, working hard to look after our world because all the information they're getting is purely miserable and um it's bringing them down too much and um I'm not saying he was saying inject humor into it but um, when I was looking for a site for my own memoirs, my own short memoir pieces, I couldn't find anything that suited them because they, like Stephen, I've not had any experience, like Barra, 
with growing up. But, you know, when I was, when I write about slightly unhappy experiences, I do try to inject some humor into them. And when I was looking for the site for me that would suit that style of writing, I couldn't find anything, which is why last year I decided to start memoirist.org. Like you say, Paul, even though Farah's experience was really, it's really interesting and we need to document experiences like this, she still manages to add a, a certain lightness to the experience, which makes it readable. For example, when she talks about, um, I remember the curfew, she talks about everybody being so quiet and yet the, even, even the um, tobacco seller it was, he sneezes quietly in the curfew, which was that little bit of cleverness in her in her um, in her memoir that just keeps it keeps the reader attached to it, and it doesn't you're you're, you're able to keep going with the reading just because she injects those little touches here and there. Maybe it's not humor. Maybe it's cleverness then. Cleverness, or is it lightness or craft? I think lightness and craft is the the thing that we need to. Mm. describe it as which yeah, is so yeah. I mean, important you mentioned the david attenborough thing I, I read the same thing or heard the same thing as well and, and it reminded me instantly of my favorite book of all time which is douglas adams last chance to see i mean it was the only non-fiction book he ever wrote sadly but at the center of the book is a story about what we're doing to the creatures on this planet i mean it's called last chance to see because he and mark carwardine the naturalist go in search of the most can you hear the dog? <laughs> the post fans just locking up to go. In Last Chance to See, Douglas Adams and the naturalist Mark Carwardine go in search of some of the most endangered animals on the planet. You know, some species of animals that are down to less than double figures in terms of their population. It's very poignant. It's very sad at times. But you come away from the book with a big smile on your face and the thought, Do you know what? They're doing some brilliant stuff out there trying to save these things because he celebrates the people who are trying to keep these things going. And I think that's important. You can write, you can write a memoir that, or a, an autobiography that has got tragedy in it. I don't think you can write one without, really, to be honest, because that's how life works. But you can inject humour, and as you said, you can inject craft. And, and Douglas Adams was a, a master of his art. I mean, the book—I must have read it twenty times, and I never tire of it. It's extraordinary. When I was a, a teacher, um, I taught Bertolt Brecht, and um, as one of the units in the drama, and. Um, we wanted to, me and the students wanted to put on a small device to play about homelessness. So we used Brecht's code of how, how we would go about this. And one of the things was to, you know, for, for satire, it has to be humorous. There has to be the humor with the satirical message underneath. So the whole school saw their wonderful piece on homelessness, which should be, you know, a very tragic piece, but the audience were rolling around with laughter. Obviously there were serious pieces mixed in with the, with the humor. And we did a questionnaire afterwards for even the, the little kids. Um, what have you learned about homelessness and why do you think we added the humor? And they said, because it, it just made it so much more watchable that you had the humor in it. And yeah. we, we, we know it was a serious message, but we, so even little, you know, 11 year olds were coming out knowing more and, um, feeling like they, they could um, act on this issue. I mean, I've read a few autobiographies and memoirs over the years. And the, the one thing that strikes me is that just like fiction, the best biographies always have an element of conflict throughout them. There's got to be, be a story of someone 
working against something you know something is either crushing their lives or the lives of the people around them or indeed the situation they're having to live through is it possible do you think i mean i don't know who to throw this to first let's maybe throw it to farrah first do you think it's possible to write a memoir or an autobiography where everything is nice because i'm not sure i could ever write mine like i said uh, that there has to be some kind of conflict or, or something has or you know there has to be something that is an either an obstacle or conflict and I'm sure we will find something like that in our childhoods if we sort of looked deep enough. Fine, we went to the beach, but I'm sure there was, a, there was something that wasn't accessible to us. I also know some friends who were struggling with parental love, for example, in other parts of the world. I mean, they could write brilliant memoirs about that, how a child feels alienated from their own parents. So I'm sure there are certain things, I mean, when I was growing up in Kashmir, I really didn't think anything was, I mean, I thought it was a way of life now. I didn't think how, what the pace things were changing and what it really meant. By the time I reached 17, 18, I was already on antidepressants. And I used to tell everyone for indescribable reasons. I mean, can't be, they can't be described. I don't know why am I on antidepressants. I'm perfectly okay. So even for me, I didn't really feel at that point till I investigated and examined the childhood that I had. For me, it happened outside. For me, it, it happened was a political landscape. And when I examined the kind of adolescence I'd had, I mean, I then realized what my escape mechanisms were, what my coping mechanisms were. And since I've, I've sort of examined and I've looked at it for about 10 years now, I can't but help look at my uh, niece who is eight, seemingly a perfect childhood, uh, loved by her parents, loved her grandparents' daughter on her, She's brilliant at art, doesn't want to study too much. And then I realized, because the schools are still shut most of the time, schools haven't been opened in Kashmir since Article 370, which was abrogated by India, Indian state uni unilaterally. She's not been to school since August 5, 2019. As a result, she spends all the time doing art and craft, and she'll make things quickly out of paper and you know she has a way with things now but for some reason she just has blocked uh, she just studies enough to, to to basically pass her exams and I know what where that's coming from it's anxiety of will I go to the school or not go to the school will I see my friends or not see my friends so she's sort of blocked it for now and it's not that she's not interested in studies because she was a complete she was a good student before and she was doing well so it's, I think once we start examining what our lives are made of with a little bit of distance, with a little bit of introspection, there are enough things that it could be a, it could be a neighborhood bully sometimes. It could be something that, that, that's informing us as children as, as we become adults and what kind of adults we become. And that once you look back at your life, you, you see, for me, the, the obstacle or children are from Kashmir, it's not an obstacle, it's like a threat and that you are you know, very threatening circumstances that you're living with or within. But to write something, I'm, I'm sure there can be something. I mean, I, I just feel that even normal childhoods have something that once we examine our lives, can throw up something. Writing a memoir is, is great for doing that, for examining and understanding what happened better in hindsight. That's what I found when, over the lockdown, I, I started writing a piece just about my grandmother's mainly because I didn't want to forget everything and I wanted it written down and I was going to put it into my memoirist site. 
but it just carried on because the lockdown carried on. So my writing carried on. It's really kind of answered a lot of questions and explained a lot about motivations and the way I've turned out really. So I would recommend it. I would really recommend memoir writing to, even if you don't, even if you don't feel troubled or anything like that, just write your memoirs and have them for yourself and look back at them or share them. So that leads us to questions. Who is memoir writing really for, the writer or the reader? And I want to ask about the love affair with Fasim and other ways in which growing up in Kashmir affected you, particularly as a woman, Farah. But we're coming to the end of part one of this episode of We'd Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. With Farah Bashir, author of Rumours of Spring and Oriel Rowe from The Memoirist. Join us for part two. Mm-hmm.